You are listening to the Ipsos Mori Elections podcast, where we will be taking a data-driven look at the 2019 general election and possibly beyond. Each episode will feature a panel of distinguished guests looking back at the past week of the campaign and asking who's up, who's down, and what should we be looking out for in the next week. We will also be delving into the data, looking at some Ipsos Mori polling, and asking our experts to explain what's behind the trends we see. Hopefully, we'll have some fun along the way too. Thanks for listening. You are listening to the Ipsos Mori Elections podcast with me, Kieran Pedley, and I'm delighted to be joined uh, today by Muir Dickey, a Scotland correspondent based out of Edinburgh for the Financial Times, and Emily Gray, Managing Director of Ipsos Mori Scotland. Um, welcome to you both. Um, Muir, I- I'll come to you first. I mean, this might sound like a bit of a churlish question. It's not designed to be. But why does why does Scotland matter so much in this election? Well, I think you see it matters for two reasons, apart from, of course, being the most important place in the world. Um, <laughs> this election, in as much as there still seems to be a possibility that uh, there could be, uh, 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 it may be difficult for the Conservatives to get a majority in Parliament, then every seat counts. And Scotland has a large number of very marginal seats. And so what happens in those seats um, could end up being decisive if there is a, is a hung parliament. Uh, I, I, for example, um, if the Conservatives had not made progress in taking uh, seats in, uh, in Scotland in 2015, then Theresa May would not have been able to get a majority even with the help of the DUP. So uh, in, a, in a, any kind of close election, then Scotland's um, 59 seats suddenly become more important. But also, I think, in the longer term, the results of this election and what it means for the UK and how Scotland votes may have, uh, uh, will have, I think, implications for how the independence debate in Scotland goes. Uh, And if Scotland moves towards uh, independence and if pressure grows for a second independence referendum, then obviously that has very important implications for the future of the UK as a whole. And I suppose, Emily, from a pollster's perspective, Scotland feels instinctively like a very difficult place to poll because there's so many different dynamics, aren't there, about how um, there's the, there's the obviously Westminster voting intention question, then there's the question about independence and how you get a balanced sample out of all of that is obviously a challenge. That's absolutely right. And, you know, and it's also what, what, what makes it such an interesting place to do, to do polling in. So as Neil says, in Scotland, this is an incredibly marginal election. So of Scotland's 59 seats at Westminster, 46 of those, that's over three quarters, are defined as marginal seats where you, know, you have a swing of up to 10% and that will lead to, lead to a change. So it's a, you know, it's, it's a place that a lot of attention will be on come, come election night. Sure. And we had some voting intention polling out um, last week. Um, Emily, could you explain a bit about what we were seeing in those numbers and maybe how things have changed since uh, the most recent poll of the last election? Sure. Well, in terms of the headlines, uh, good news for the SNP, Tory vote holding up, but pretty bad news really for Scottish Labour. Going unpicking that a bit, so our latest poll has the SNP on a 44% share of the vote. Based on that, they look very likely to, to make gains this time around. So you'll remember back in 2015, there was the SNP land, landslide where 
essentially the electoral map of Scotland turned from, from red to yellow. So 56 of those 59 seats went to the SNP. In 2017, that fell back a bit. So the SNP now have 35 seats, but it looks likely that the result this time round will be will lie somewhere between between those two. Uh, but turnout will, you know, as ever, will be a challenge to the SNP and the SNP politicians have been very cautious not to be complacent because, you know, in terms of their supporter base, the SNP do particularly well among younger people, but will those younger people who say they'll vote for the SNP now actually turn out on polling day? And do we know do we know what dynamics are, are at play here? I mean, so at face value, just looking at these headline figures, it would appear that you've got what Labour voters from 2017 moving to the SNP, but, it, but presumably it's not quite as straightforward as that maybe. It's not here. I mean, Brexit is a is a huge factor. So when we look at how Remainers are voting, the SNP are doing best at picking up Remainers in Scotland. But we also see that the Tories of any party are doing best at picking up those you know those four in ten four in ten people in Scotland who voted to leave the EU back in 2016. And so the the you might have expected at the start of the campaign that. Without Ruth Davidson as party leader, would you know, would the Tories fall back a bit in Scotland? Uh, but you know, our latest poll has them on 26% of the votes. That's a little lower than the, than the share of the vote that they achieved in 20 in 2017. But it does broadly seem to be holding up. And also, when we look at how how people you know, whether people have made up their minds to vote for a particular party or not, you know the those who say that they'll vote Conservative are surer of their votes than vote those voting Labour, for example. I suppose, Muir, we often, we often think of uh, this general election UK-wide as the Brexit election. I think Sky News down here, they even call it that. I mean, presumably Scotland's slightly different, at least with the independence question, but what are the sort of issues on voters' minds, do you think, from, from the conversations you're having? So I think, although the independence question is still the most fundamental fault line that you find among Scottish voters, but Brexit uh, is actually more of a priority for a lot of voters at the moment. And the way in which Brexit and independence interact um, makes for, in, in, in some constituencies, uh, a particularly sort of um, a complicated situation. So if you are a, a Brexiteer who wants very strongly Scotland to remain in the UK, then, then, then clearly the Tories are your party. But in many seats mm. in Scotland, they're, they're not um, a credible uh, uh, you know, contender against the SNP. And therefore, you might find yourself having to compromise on Brexit to support independence. But other way around is also um, you, you have situations where the, particularly in, for example, the seats that the Conservatives currently hold, that people who might strongly disagree with them on Brexit will find that their desire to stop the SNP taking a victory as a as a as a vote for another Scottish independence referendum enough of a of a push to make them kind of hold their nose and vote Tory. Uh, but at the same time, for people who think that this election should be mainly about Brexit, they can work in exactly the opposite direction. And so you have really quite um, interesting uh, uh, voting decisions and, and often very painful ones. In the last uh, week or so, I've, I've, I've seen a conservative person who's, who's preparing to vote Labour and a strongly socialist person who, who is ready to vote Conservative. And, and I would, wouldn't say either of them were particularly happy about it. Seems to be a familiar pattern across the country. I'll, st- I'll stay with you, Muir, for the time being. Um, so 
we're looking at um, obviously the party leaders have a big role to play, and I want to get some numbers from Emily in a moment. But I mean, do you, do you have a sense of which party leaders are having a good or bad campaign at the moment? I mean, it seems to me like Nicola Sturgeon is obviously uh, dominates being the first minister and uh, obviously the leader of the SNP. But I mean, what's your sense of the different party leaders and who's doing well and badly in this election? It's interesting. I mean, anecdotally, I would say that Nicola Sturgeon is much more a uh, divisive figure than she's been in previous elections, uh, certainly since 2015. And, I, and, and my feeling would be since 2017. She, she is um, widely admired, and uh, uh, even her opponents would uh, generally recognize her as a, a very effective and competent politician. But uh, quite a lot of voters I meet, even ones who have voted SNP in, in the past, uh, express quite negative opinions of her. And I think that may be partly that she has been at or close to the top of government now for a decade. And, and there's a, a, you know, the, the kind of dissatisfaction with elements of the Scottish government's record uh, coming into play. And also perhaps over familiarity, but she's she's not the unambiguous adva- um, you know um, advantage that she was in in in, in 2015 for the SNP. Um, on the other side, uh, Boris Johnson, I find a lot of uh, very strongly phrased um, uh, dislike of him as UK Prime Minister, uh, and yet, as Emily was saying, it, it so far doesn't seem to have had the impact on the likely Tory vote that might have been expected. And I think that's in part because um, uh, people have, have uh, uh, his charm appeals to a segment of uh, Scottish population, and that and that bit, the people who are, would tend to um, to like Boris Johnson as a as a politician. Uh, tend to be the kind of voters who would be both for Brexit and for Scotland remaining in the in the union. So his impact on the vote seems to be less than expected. Jeremy Corbyn has his fans, but we don't see the kind of um, enthusiasm for him, uh, not the same level of enthusiasm that uh, that we had in, in 2017. Although I think it should be said a, a couple of times, uh, in the last few weeks, I've met young people, first-time voters, or people, unfortunately for Labour, perhaps too young to vote, who have been very enthusiastic about Jeremy Corbyn and what they see as a much more uh, relevant uh, policy platform for them than is offered by the other parties. Right. And Emily, how, do, how does some of that compare to what we're seeing in the, the polling? Well, Joe put his finger on it with the word divisive where when we speak about Nicola Sturgeon. So the Scottish public are split down the middle, really, on how she's doing her job as First Minister. So we have 48% saying they're satisfied on the one hand, 48% saying that they're dissatisfied. But even given that, she is still remains the highest rated of any of the Scottish party, party leaders. So... We, as we see that both Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn are unpopular in Scotland. But the most fascinating story for me is how Jeremy Corbyn has actually fallen out of favour among Scottish voters. So when we look at his satisfaction ratings at a similar point ahead of the 20, in the 2017 campaign, uh, since then, his ratings are down 34 percentage points with Scottish voters. That's a really big shock. And he now, you know, and voters in Scotland now rate him not all that much higher than Boris Johnson. So for me, that's, uh, you know, that feels like a big change. 
And what about the um, the local uh, party leaders for, if local is the right word, the national the national party leaders in Scotland for for, for, for Labour and uh, the Conservatives and, and, and Lib Dems maybe? Well, for, for the Conservatives, Jackson Carlow is interim leader. He's, the, as you would expect, he's the least well known of the Scottish party leaders. Uh, Richard Leonard for Scottish Labour, his ratings are the lowest of the of the leaders of Scotland's four largest parties. Um, so for Labour, in a way, they're caught between a rock and a hard place. So Richard Leonard is not doing particularly well here, and Jeremy Corbyn's not helping him. Yeah, Richard Leonard uh, he, he has had um, a really difficult time even being mm. noticed by Scottish voters. I, I kind of, uh, every time I'm going to a Labour event or anything that, that Richard Leonard's going to be at, I, I tend to ask a, a taxi driver what they think of Richard Leonard. And, and very often they've got no idea who he is or they're, they're certainly unsure. And um, it, it, it's kind of almost more frightening, I think, for Labour uh, that more frightening that, that there's a low approval among the people who know Richard Leonard, but that so many people just don't know at all and, and, and don't see Labour as relevant to the debate, uh, which is an extraordinary fall for a party that dominated Scottish politics for most of the, the latter part of the last century. Absolutely, and Labour here have been trying to move the campaign on to talking about more about health and the NHS, but when Brexit in particular and independence also are looming so so large in the minds of people in Scotland, then you know it can be difficult for Labour to cut through. So let's move on to the independence question, never far away, and I think we saw that in our sort of opening remarks and our opening uh, questions. Um, so, Emily, I think on the polling... It seemed like one of the surprising uh, trends or lack of trends in public opinion after the Brexit vote was there didn't seem to be this sudden upsurge in um, support for independence. But at the same time, it does look like from our most recent numbers that the future of the union is very much on a knife edge. I mean, what, what's our what's our polling showing? Well, it's too close to call at the moment. So among people who would be likely to vote in an independence referendum, if one was held tomorrow, it's split right down the middle. So 50%, once you take your undecided and you're refused out, 50% say they would vote yes, 50% say they would not vote no. And that, ha that is a change. And it's a change that we've seen across all the polls in Scotland in recent months. So we are seeing a modest but kind of significant increase in support for independence. When you look at where that's coming from, you know, but I think Brexit is playing a role. So we see change in particular among people who voted to remain in the EU back in 2016. But there's also kind of demographic factors at play. So you know, younger people, so people aged 16 to 34, are much more likely to vote yes. And, you know, of course, the, the first independence referendum was over five years ago now. So people who were aged only 11 then would be eligible to vote now. And young people are now even more likely than they were to say that they'll vote yes. And Muir, what's your take on the independence question? I mean, some people I speak to sort of assume that an eventual yes vote is almost inevitable. I mean, would you share that view? Well, I'm not a great believer in historical inevitability, um, but uh, I, I, I think people who, um, you know, defenders of the union would be right to be extremely nervous about 
uh, its prospects, given the, the very equal divide on, uh, uh, on the independence question at the moment and what is likely to come down the line with Brexit. Uh, there is, I think, um, the, the, the whole Brexit process has um, deepened disillusionment with the Westminster system and has made people who previously uh, were very uh, supportive of remaining in the UK uh, question what kind of country the UK is and what kind of country it's going to become and, and makes the idea of independent Scotland the kind of independent Scotland, at least, that was, was painted um, by the, the Yes campaign in 2014 of uh, 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 EU um, member, open, uh, more socially just state, that, that vision is, is more attractive. But for anyone who's kind of assuming that that means independence is now definitely going to happen, I think there are a couple of um, important counter arguments. One is that Brexit, especially a Brexit uh, along the lines of what seems likely with Boris Johnson, in other words, a relatively distant uh, economic relationship with the EU compared to what we have now, that, that would have very profound implications for the Scottish economy in the event of independence uh, if, if the Scottish economy, uh, if Scotland was to seek to, to be part of the EU single market and customs union as the SNP says it would. Um, because it would create a significant uh, economic border between England and Scotland, and, and, and England is a, a very important market and level of economic integration uh, between England and Scotland is, is very high. So the kind of uh, low-friction, low-cost, uh, friendly, easy divorce that the SNP tried to say was possible in 2014 uh, it simply wouldn't even be uh, conceivable if... Uh, in the event of, of that kind of Brexit. Uh, therefore, you know, the, the, the kind of cautious um, uh, economic con concerns that many people in Scotland, that pushed many people in Scotland to vote um, uh, no to independence in 2014 would be reinforced. I think there's also the question of um, uh, constitutional, uh, the, the, the difficulties of constitutional change and uh, the consequences of a referendum, uh, that that kind of um, uh, what is it, the, 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 it, that the picture of easily changing constitutional arrangements um, is much harder to paint after three years of Brexit chaos. And uh, I think when it came to the, the crunch, many people in Scotland would would, would wonder if independence uh, would be worth. The, the difficulty of disentangling Scotland from its three-century-old union with England. Mm. And that may well be people feeding into people's thinking. So we asked people in Scotland whether they support or oppose a second Indy ref being held next year in, in 2020. So Nicola current current position on when one should happen. And half of Scots say that they oppose it, while 42% support. So that, that timing issue does remain a, a really quite a difficult balancing act, uh, since more people oppose a second referendum next year than support it. Which is a really, which is a really interesting question. That because, I mean, you might want independence, but think now is not the moment to go for it. Uh, and mm. particularly as the fiscal situation in 2014, Scotland. Um, still had substantial oil and gas revenues that would have uh, smoothed the, 
the fiscal costs of separation from the UK, but uh, the oil price slump was put, paid to that, and and so the fiscal implications in the short term of independence from from the UK would be extremely challenging, uh, and uh, so it, it's not unreasonable for people to even if they wanted independence to say, well, I, I'm not in a rush to do it right now. There's also the question of letting things settle. If we were to have an independence referendum next year, it would uh, almost certainly well, very likely come before we had any high degree of certainty about the long-term economic relationship between the UK and the EU, um, which would make it difficult mm-hmm. to, and more difficult to judge the economic risks and, and potential benefits of independence. Um, uh, so, you, yeah, go ahead. Also, from the public's perspective, you know, the, in the last five years, we've had two referenda, and this will be the third election. So that's a lot of constitution, constitutional events. Is it any surprise that you know, many don't want a, another NDREF next year? Mm. But it is a very big gamble, I think, that the Conservatives are taking in Scotland by, by ruling out indefinitely uh, Westminster giving approval for another Scottish independence referendum. Because there is quite a broad consensus, I think, in Scotland that um, Scotland's constitutional future should be for people in Scotland to decide. And it's possible that, uh, well, with Jackson Carlaw, the interim leader of the Conservative Party, suggesting that Westminster shouldn't approve another referendum before the 2050s, it's possible that that will feed into a sense of um, alienation between Scots and and the the UK. So um, fi- final question for you both then, um, from me. So uh, let's return to the present, as it were, elections next Thursday. Are there any particular uh, dynamics or seats you're looking out for next uh, next week at the election? And then briefly, I mean, where do you see Scottish politics going um, afterwards? I- I- I'll come to you, Emily, first. So, I mean, one, one very obvious seat to watch is North East Fife. So that's the most, most marginal seat uh, in, in, the whole of, in the whole of the UK with just a majority of just two. Um, so there would be a very small swing needed there. I think interesting for the Conservatives is Perth and North Perthshire. So that will be their number one, number one target. Um, so, you know, if they, they win here, then, then it's good news for them. They should be increasing their representation. So after the election, I mean, one thing for sure, it's it's not going to be quiet next year. So <laughs> Brexit and independence aren't going to go away as key issues. I think one development would be the Alex Salmon trials. He's due to stand trial in March. Scotland, of course, has very strict rules on what can be said in relation to live court cases. So there's very little we can say about that. But of course, we would need to see how that plays out. And final word to you, Muir. Indeed, um, North East Fife is an exciting seat. I, I think we'll also, I'll be looking at, at Glasgow, where uh, it, it would appear that Labour may lose the single seat um, that it, uh, it, it managed to win in 2017 and will fall back in what was once its uh, party heartlands. Uh, then the uh, Conservative seats across the North East um, how many of them the Tories are able to hold or lose will, will be uh, will be very interesting to watch. I, looking beyond the election, of course, um, I think you know we started off with the question of um, why Scotland matters, but but the future of the UK um, uh, politics will be decided obviously much more uh, south of the border, and if England votes strongly for uh, the Conservatives, then I think. 
we might have a period where, where Scotland seems to matter less because the uh, SNP, however many seats it wins out of the 59, won't be able to influence uh, the course of Westminster politics in the way that they have been uh, for the last couple of years because uh, it was a minority Conservative government. Um, conversely, if it was a hung parliament, and particularly if the SNP had the, um, the, 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 the swing uh, votes, then we could see an unprecedented uh, degree of Scottish influence on the future of, uh, of the UK, uh, at least, at least in, in, mm. uh, in recent uh, centuries. And that would be uh, extremely interesting to watch. Yes, lots to look out for of just over a week left to go in this general election campaign. Emily Gray and uh, Muir Dickey, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. you. You've been listening to the Ipsos Mori Elections Podcast with me, Kieran Pedley. If you like what you hear, why not subscribe on iTunes or one of the other podcast apps that you might use, or tell a friend about us on social media or elsewhere. And keep an eye out for more Ipsos Mori Elections Podcasts in the coming days and weeks. (laughs) 